Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in the Parsha Titzaveh. We're in the last third of the Parsha, where we are given instructions on offerings that are to happen in the Mishkan, as well as instructions about ordination for Aharon, for Aaron, and his sons, because they will, of course, be the priests. So we're getting instructions about how it is that they will actually be um, made into priests. So there's always uh, a certain kind of tension with who has the role of authority and who gives authority and right so when you have the making of a the crowning of a king or queen right it's a big deal who puts the crown on their head right that's almost a bigger deal than who's the king or queen because the kingmaker is the one with the real power right so um so Aharon and his sons are the focus of the ordination Who's the one carrying out the ordination? Moshe. Moshe carries it out as the prophet. Uh, to be clear that it is with God's authority that Aharon and his sons will take up uh, in what our tradition is seen as a responsibility. They will be taking on this sacred responsibility, which is also one of great risk. So they are seen as actually putting themselves in the front line um, of the dangerous intersection between humanity and the divine. Like all important moments, there's a, a need to prepare for ordination. The priests have to undergo a ritual of purification before being ordained. And so what is the way that we do that? Blood. Water. <laughs> Water. Water. Right. Blood cleanses. Water purifies people, right? There, there is going to be blood on people, right? But it does something a little bit different. For ritual purification purposes, for people, it's water, right? This is fairly universal. Right? As an anthropologist, I can tell you it's fairly universal. The idea that water somehow cleanses not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally, right? New starts, new things often involve some kind of ritual of pouring or, you know, um, some kind of understanding of water as as ch- helping change one's status spiritually. This is um, mikvah, right? For us is very old. We see it here. It starts here. That they immerse themselves in water is very, very, very old. And of course, if Jesus is going to go undergo a huge transformation, what has to happen? Mikvah. Right? Baptism directly comes from mikvah. Because Jesus, when he has a major transformation, was a Jew. So that has to be represented by mikvah. And that's, so that's what we see in that narrative as well. Moses was saved from the water as well. So, a little different, right? That, that's a, uh, literary, lovely technique. Uh, right, it, that water was understood to be the water he was supposed to be killed in, and is then drawn from, and saved, and because it's the body of water that feeds Egypt. Like there's lots of levels of that one. 
this one is uh, really about changing changing something fundamental about one's state. All right, let's look at 29.9. It's a weird, it's broken up very oddly. So start at 8. <laughs> then bring his sons forward, clothe them with tunics and wine turbans upon them, and gird both Aaron and his sons with sashes, and so they shall have priesthood as their right for all time. Go on. You shall then ordain Aaron and his sons, lead the bull up to the front of the tent of meeting, and let Aaron and his sons lay their hands upon the head of the bull. Slaughter the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and take some of the bull's blood and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. Then pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. Take all the fat that covers the entrails, the protuberance on the liver, and the two kidneys with the fat on them, and turn them into smoke upon the altar. The rest of the flesh of the bull, its hide and its dung, shall be put to fire outside the camp. It is a purification offering. Interesting. Purification offering? Very interesting. What does somebody else want to argue, it says? And what is purgation about? Yes, that's right. Chatat. This is a chatat offering. This is a sin offering. For me, a very important point is that there is no anywhere in Judaism, in biblical Judaism, nowhere ever, 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 ever is there a suggestion that any human being ever is without sin. Ever. It is not a goal. It is not possible. It is not part of Jewish tradition anywhere ever. The priest, the high priest, brings a sin offering before his ordination. The priest and the high priest will bring a sin offering every year at Yom Kippur. He cannot officiate about the ex for the expiation of the people until he himself has brought a sin offering because it is assumed he has sinned. A very important point for me. Something I value very much about our tradition. Yes. <laughs> Reuben, oh boy. So, original, original sin is not a Jewish concept. So, it, in Christian tradition, Christians, the Christian tradition points to our text to locate original sin with Adam and Eve. And because of what they did, all of humanity is born with that original sin. That is not Jewish. Right? That we, we are born pure and we're gonna sin. Every single one of us. But we start with a clean slate, right? Are there consequences according to Jewish tradition of that first act of transgression? Absolutely. That men have to work, or, or, or going to the traditional model, men have to work and women Bear children in pain. Um, and again, remember, Genesis is describing the world as it is for the people who wrote it. Not as it should be, right? So the world as it was is pe- men worked and in terms of the, by the sweat of their brow, right? Like physical labor. 
and women labored in childbirth and risked their lives every time. Um, so original sin is not something that is part of our tradition, even though it's located by a different theology in our in our text, right? Which is which is the challenge of sharing texts with a tradition that went in an entirely different direction, right? That that's the tension, and it is the root in Christianity of a lot of anti-Semitism because they don't. Because people don't tend to really care about other what other people believe. Do we really care what Hindus believe? Does it make us crazy if they come in here and talk about what they believe? We're like, oh, that, that's interesting. Oh, you know, we have a different way of thinking about that same concept. We don't care, right? If someone wants to tell me what Bereshit says, however, I get a little crazy, right? So because it's my text. I understand it is my text, right? Well, Christianity felt the same way. That they were interpreting these texts and we were going, uh, excuse me, nuh-uh, 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 right? That, and it, it has fueled a lot of anti-Semitism historically. I don't know what's happening today. Alright, so, I know, right? right? It's like, got it, okay, we're good, we're good, it's all good. Maybe totally off track, but just... Something new and different. Following from what you were talking about, you know, there's nobody at any point is without some sin, but you also said that we're born pure. So is there? do we locate anywhere when that changes, or do we just kind of let it be and no, acknowledge? Interesting. That It's a good question. So, you know, if we're born pure, like how is it that we're, we just assume everyone's going to sin, right? So we're fallible, we're human, so... It's the first time you go to the grocery store as a toddler. <laughs> the first time you go to the grocery store as a toddler, that's the mark of demarcation, says Rick. So um, when when does it change? So, I mean, you know, this is one of the things that's so powerful about Bar and Bat Mitzvah, traditionally, is that you were not held accountable for anything you did wrong until the age of majority. Until bar or bat mitzvah. That's right. So you, and parents said a blessing. They still do, traditionally, thanking God that this kid is no longer their responsibility. <laughs> right? That, that the kid's behavior is no longer implicating the parent in the big black book in the sky. And, and that now whatever checks and X's go in my book is not a result of my child's behavior because now it's on them. So zero to thirteen, we're not saying pure still, but it's not on the child, right? Because it's understood they're, they're, they don't have the capacity really. Now we know it's not till the frontal lobes have fully developed, right? It's not till they're twenty five that they can actually be counted on to behave in any kind of fully rational way. Um, but but what but what I like about that tradition, our tradition. Is it's understood that children are feeling their way through all this business and they're trying to figure out, I want, so I want to take, but is that okay? And under what circumstances? And that, that that's normal and natural and we figure it out for the rest of our lives, but until 13, they're not held accountable the same way. Um, is this, tied up, this is tied up with the idea of free will that we can choose. Yes. Because if we can't choose, Yes. Then we can't be blind. Can we keep that a secret? 
We keep we keep what a secret that they're not accountable. Right. It's a good idea to keep it from them. Yes. Uh, I was going to say something else about this. Uh, the, the rabbis understand that we're born with two inclinations, the Yetzer Hatov and the Yetzer Hara, the good inclination and the evil inclination. And there's a lot of Midrashic literature that says, and without the evil inclination, we would never get a job, never build a house, and never have children. So even, even the evil inclination has good. What can be turned around. It, it, right. So my, my inclination for more mm-hmm. and greed, right, and acquisition can be turned into success. If we don't have any of that want for stuff, how hard are we going to work? Look, if I didn't have to work, right? I would teach y'all, of course, for free. Um, but there's there's good that can come out of what we choose to do in response to the Yetzer Haraz prompting. Yeah? And so it's up to us to constantly be working on our capacity to choose. And in mindfulness practice, if you've been learning with me at all or do it at all on your own, it's building the capacity to respond rather than react. So often if it's I want, I get driven by that without stopping to say I want. Now what do I want to do about wanting? I was just going to comment that it bothers me that uh, Yetzir Hara has been translated into evil. In my you know, learning of Hebrew, it's really just bad. Now evil sounds much worse than the word bad. Mm-hmm. So I think it... I don't know. It gives the wrong impression. It's not really evil. It's just sort of negative. So, I mean, well, I th- when I grew up, it was evil inclination. So, <laughs> right? So already the language had changed. I think what you're pointing to, I think we now have a loaded connotation of evil. When I was growing up, the evil inclination, good in- inclination, evil inclination, whatever, like, I think now, and maybe it's just that I'm older, but I think we have a, a much stronger reaction to the word evil now. Um, there's a lot more of it. Um, and and we see too much and we know too much, right? And we're using that word to, to describe heinous, heinous acts. Which I think is a bit strong when you think of the good and bad or evil inclination. Right. Right, right. That's my point. We've loaded the word evil now in a way that I think you're right. That's not what the rabbis mean when they say yetzer hara. And if it's coming from somewhere, heinous acts come from, for them, the yetzer hara. But yes, it just means kind of bad, bland bad. Yes, Margo. Just a side one. When I pulled up here this morning, mm-hmm. you said you can't park under here, but you can park in the street. Or in the lot behind, so I should sure it's all right to park in the street because I'm I'm a rule follower. So the guy looked at me too. Who told you that? The guard. Oh, okay. <laughs> we have a little chat with the <laughs> staff. There you go. Right. All right, let's look at, um, yes. Would someone who didn't follow a commandment be evil or bad? 
We, there's no language for that. So what is David's question is, if people didn't follow a commandment, were they bad or evil? And it's not, it's not how the word ra is used. We can do tov or ra. We can do good or bad, and bad enough is evil. Is the, someone who kills evil or someone who covets his neighbor? We don't call people good or bad. It's not used. It's not you. The act is right. So what's the utility of the word? It's the act, not the person. Because for the remember, we talked about the rabbis are taxonomists. The rabbis care very much about categories. The rabbis are obsessed with categorizing the universe. It's how they had control, and so. Things are are very important to be put in categories. If you have tov, you have to have ra, and that goes back early. I think I think the inclination to have <laughs> good and evil, um, it, it's 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 throughout hum, human culture. It's not just Judaism. Terrestrial human culture seems to have an understanding of good and bad, good and evil. However, we want to use those words. Those are English words. Us, us distinguishing between bad and evil is English. It's not there in Hebrew. We, we come from a culture that looks at God and Satan as in this perpetual war between capital G good and capital E. Look, for the rabbis, it was a big deal too. Let's be honest. Satan was a big deal for the rabbis. Not as much as in... Satan was always trying to pull us off track, constantly. So, but it do, it's not quite as... It's not quite as powerful as in uh, Christianity, but but Satan is quite there for the rabbis. Could you just talk for thirty more seconds on the, the meditation part of when you when you have an inclination coming on about what you say to yourself? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the next hour. I want something or I need something about what, what is the language you use in your okay. head? Start. <laughs> so, it's a it's a wonderful question and actually is probably worthy of you know a two hour class. <laughs> so I'll I'll briefly talk to the point. I think what, the the first thing is that we build the capacity to notice. So we have to build the capacity to notice. I'm hooked, right? The inclination is at work because often what happens is we over-identify with our feelings. I'm angry. No, I'm Amy who's experiencing the emotion of anger. Calling in the witness, I'm Amy. Oh, look, there's anger rather than I'm angry. That's a huge practice to constantly say, oops, there's that feeling, right? I'm, I'm, I'm hooked. I'm on the hook now. So, cause generally we just start to thrash when we're hooked, right? Um, so building the capacity to notice what's happening is huge. And there's lots of different ways to do that. Um, then building our capacity to hold what we notice without flipping out or trying to deny it or stuff it or push it aside or go shopping or eat or drink, like whatever we do to normally not have to deal with it, right? So to build the capacity to notice and then hold what's happening without losing, as Pima children would say, without losing my seat. 
can I hold what's happening right now? I'm hooked. Notice that. I'm really angry. Interesting. I'm really angry. I wonder what's going on with that. (laughs) There's anger again. And then allow ourselves to feel it, experience it, whatever. Sit with it. Be with it. And then take a deep breath or chant or daven or whatever or go to mikvah or like whatever it is that helps run. Oh, God. Um, That helps (laughs) exercise. um, Shift us out of needing to to do something with that anger, right? That we can just kind of get through it. And then we get to a place where we can make some thoughtful decisions. Okay, I'm ang- what made me angry? What do I need to do so that that situation doesn't happen again? Because our emotions are not invalid. They're indicating something. Am I angry because I'm jealous? Am I angry because I'm hurt? Right? Because anger is usually a cover for something else. This is all just examples, obviously. Um, anger is a cover for sadness. Right? So, because that's way more comfortable than feeling vulnerable and sad mm-hmm. or whatever, or unloved or unworthy, all those things that go into jealousy. Right? So, so it's important to say, okay, so what about that situation is made me so angry? And so what do I need to do? It might be I have to have a conversation with somebody to say, you know what? I've thought about it. And it's really not acceptable what just happened. It can't happen again. You can't talk to me like that again. Uh, right? And available after class? <laughs> <laughs> uh, always I'm available after class. You know, so, can I just also say that I think what you're saying is so true. And in the contemporary age, it's even more important, particularly with so much communication being done electronically. I mean, how often do we receive an email or a text that angers us? And your initial response is you want to reply right away. And, um, you know, Never a good idea. It's so critical to wait an hour, a day, a week, um, and really you know, restrain from immediately communicating because of all the things you said. The other thing I want to say, and this is particularly to David, because you should know this because your kids went to Marquez, and all of our kids were taught in that song in the play by Mrs. Reese, count to ten, walk away, you know, it will be okay, you know. So the the word that that, that Rick just used, um, restraint, is a very powerful midah, is a very powerful, um, what's midah in English? Ethics, quality. Uh, Quality, characteristic. So a very important spiritual quality or characteristic. And the rabbis work very hard at practicing restraint to, to not go where our instincts often drive us. Um, so, so we just ended it so I can make a choice about so that next time, right, I don't, I don't get that angry. Um, and a, a big practice for us, I think, is teshuva. Right? Like, so, Really figuring out how do I forgive myself for what happened? How do I forgive someone else for what happened? And and how do we do some repair around that? That whole trajectory leads to more peaceful relationships and healing. It makes possible so many different things than what we tend to do. Can I start by saying I'm Amy? (laughs) You totally can. (laughs) You totally can. All right, so let's, let's, and, and,
remind me of that, David, before we leave today in terms of what what does for us what this did? I think it's a, it's a part of this question. We tend to look at this and go, what? But it was a visceral experience, right, of transformation that, that I sometimes, you know, talking about the times we live in, I, I wonder where those are for us. We, we have to be so disciplined to be able to just, okay, I'm feeling angry. I need to, like, now go through the whole, you know, rigmarole. It's, there aren't the, the ways we used to have kind of set t- to help us do that, I think. In regards to David's question, I think it's because we are uh, people of laws that we don't get so much into, and we have a, a feeling that we all are born good, and of course if we would do something bad, uh, it would be because of an evil inclination, but we... We're, we're born good, but we don't really focus on the evil part. What we focus on is the laws, and if you broke the law, then there's consequences for that to get you back on the track. But I, I don't find Judaism to be a, like an evil, a shaming type of religion. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, did you go through the red light? Well, then you're going to get a ticket, you know? Yeah. It's important, too, because what you wind up doing is trivializing real evil. Yes. You trivialize the Holocaust, you trivialize mm-hmm. ISIS, and if evil becomes just what we do. Yeah. And that's not a good thing to do. Linda? I just thought of the difference between Rob and Todd is that Rob is like, like Todd is like, uh, like very accepting, very humble, very unselfish, other people always come first, like a real goodness and and the other side is, you know, we, we have to compete, we sometimes pursue our own ego, like I think of the, the evil not so much as like murdering someone I think of it as like we can be competitive people we can be people that pursue our egos we can be people that put ourselves first sometimes, and there's an inclination to do that, and that's it you know, the thing is between, like, loving compassion all the time, which nobody wants to like that, or putting yourself first, and, and what's the boundary? Like, it's never okay to pursue success and walk all over people, right? But you do have that inclination to pursue your own success and well-being and status. That's how I think of it, as opposed to evil and good. It, what I hear you saying is that there's a... There's gradations that we often don't appreciate, right? That that we tend to be very binary in our culture, right? Especially right now, it's a very dangerous time, actually, um, for because it's so binary. It's either good or evil. There, there's no way. So it can go from competitive to murder. There's a range, right, on that side, and somewhat generous to Mother Teresa on the other side, loving and compassionate all the time. Right, so well, she was pretty, very. Uh, what's the word? Temperamental. No, actually, yeah. Not a good example. So, right there's 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 a full range, and we tend not to appreciate that as soon as we start needing to label stuff, good and bad. And, and we should accept that we have this side that's competitive and egoic. It's part of being human, um, but but it doesn't. Says it's because you're accepting a proportion of yourself, you don't accept murder. Like, of course, you're. And so that's so. 
So you think a lot like the rabbis. The rabbis say it's, it's, the, it's the Yetzer Hara that leads us to murder, right? Um, and the Yetzer Hara that, that keeps us competitive and helps us be successful. The rabbis want to say, take the competitive instinct and use it ethically. The reason we are a people of law is because the tradition understood that the world isn't what it should be. And we're a people of law this is, this is, by the way, Yitz Greenberg's great thinking. It's his new work. Is He says covenant, the whole idea of covenant is to take people and the world as it is and give them thereby a system to move it closer to what it should be. That we are going to kill animals and eat them is not a great thing. It is not the vision of Genesis. It is not the vision of Eden. And we do it. So if you're going to do it, you have to have laws around it. You can only kill, you know, this, this, and this. You can only do it in this kind of way. You can only do it at this kind of right? So you, and you bring a sacrifice and you eat it and it has to be shechted and you know, all that stuff. To mitigate the fact that we're gonna do stuff that isn't perfect, right? That the world isn't what it should be. So how do we take those inclinations? How do we take those appetites? How do we take all of that and find a way to limit them and channel them to to be the best people and create the best society that we can? Blanche? Well, I learned something by going to see the Bridge of Spies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I lived through that period. Mm-hmm. So admired the character that Hans Hanky plays. He was an unusual man, and we think everybody is like that. We would be blessed. Anyway, when he comes out with the idea of not letting the justice system kill a man, the spy. They really didn't have enough evidence. And the judge was about to commit this man to die. But Hank came up with this idea and asked the judge if it would be possible to put this man in jail so, in case a time comes where we can exchange prisoners, we would have something to exchange. So even our attempts at dealing with Ra, with bad, can be bad, right? So I'm sure the judge thought he was perfectly pursuing the best possible values, right, to deal with bad doing, wrong behavior, right? And in so doing, perpetrates, right, bad it's it's a very complicated thing this relationship to who decides 
Who decides what's just? Who decides what's good? Who decides what's wrong? Who decides what the consequences are? That's why most of these sins, by the way, don't come with any consequences. Because once you start talking about the consequences, oh, well, that's not such a bad consequence. <laughs> right? So maybe, right? So, and, um, who decides that? These are huge questions of humanity struggling to figure out what, what's right, what's good. I was going to say, I always wanted to be very uh, understanding and not react to the anger of the other or at least stop them. But I find out that, you know, if you allow people, just you being, you let go of it, that eventually, like the law of it is right now, if you have someone walking on your lot, do you know that after a certain number of years it becomes public property? So I, I myself always wanted to be very understanding and let go and you choose your fight, in other words. But I also find out later in life, kind of late, but you, when you allow this kind of behavior just because you want to be altruistic or good, good meaning, you also at the same time do not, do not life take the way it should be. Or if you don't, for instance, you said, if we don't respond to the anger and we let it go and we don't, we let people trample over you, eventually that turns against you. That's what I'm saying is that it, 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 you become either depressed or you, you're not in, in touch with your own feeling. And very often it comes in many months later, over the years. Do you understand what I'm mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That we are not a turn the other cheek people. That's, That's not our tradition. No. That's a different tradition, right? We, we don't say turn the other cheek, right? That, that we, we, we want to respond to our anger. We don't want to react. So there's a difference. Which is, which is true, but very often as parents, when we let our children, uh, we let it go, as you say, and they're not accountable until their bat or bar mitzvah. If you allow certain behavior and you say you're going to you're send them to their room, whatever, but eventually it does something that is unclear for their own sake and for your own sake. So we, we totally understand that we have to correct children's behavior, 100%. Hundred percent. Just because they're not accountable doesn't mean we're not teaching. Doesn't mean they don't go to their room. Doesn't mean they don't get punished. It means they don't sin until they're thirteen. Doesn't mean they don't do wrong and that they don't get consequences for doing wrong. You're teaching them what they're supposed to do and not supposed to do. They're not. They're not held accountable as having sinned. That they're. It's understood that their system isn't developed enough yet to be responsible fully for the impact of their wrong choices. Okay. Um, and, and, and again, right, we're not supposed to ignore ever what makes us angry or hurt or anything else. We live in a culture, and, and particularly as women, we're told to let it go. Yeah. Let it go. Let it go. Don't make a big deal. Don't make a fuss. Let it go. So that is not Jewish. Or spiritual in any tradition that I know of that, that to be spiritually mature means to make choices about what does that call me into when I'm calm and disengaged from emotion in touch with my values. 
What is called forth from me in this moment that I need to do? What am I called to do? We're, we're not supposed to not respond. We're supposed to not react. Right? Because if we react, we make it worse. When you say someone treats you badly, if you come back at them, guess what? The whole thing gets explosive now. And and I am only teaching what I most need to learn. I'm here to tell you. Because I can go from zero to 60 like that. It is one of the biggest things I struggle with. Right, Rick? <laughs> I struggle, right? It, it's not easy. It's not easy. But the, so, so if something comes at us and it gets us lit up, right? It, as soon as I go there, I've now made the whole situation worse. I've exacerbated the whole thing. When I can calm down, notice that I'm angry and step back from it enough to manage my anger, because that's all about me. That's all about something that's going on for me. It's nothing about the argument ever. Ever, ever, ever. It's about something it touches off in me. When I can settle down enough to deal with that and address that, then I can calmly come back to the issue that needs to be addressed. I can come back and say, you know what? I've given it some thought and I appreciate you being honest with me. And and here's what I think about that. Here's what I'm, here's what I'm planning to do or not do. And this is why. But you don't have to agree. You don't have to capitulate. It's when we lean into the emotion, when we lean into all that stuff going on, we just exacerbate it and make everything worse. Which is true. It's not It's not always that clear. Because if you come back a day or two or three later, did I say that? Or the person who's saying would not own up to what they... That, that's, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what someone else does, ever. With, In terms of our own spiritual maturity and our own spiritual growth, it never matters what you do. All that matters is what I do. That's all I can control. I can't ever control whether you own something. I don't need you to own it. I need to say my piece. So, I mean, I can't control how you choose to respond. I can't control what you do with that. That's not my business. My business is to own what I can control, which is my behavior. Did I see a hand or are we... And I thought we were not going to have a lot to talk about with the ordination of priests. All right. So we're going to, let's continue a little bit in the text. And, um, and I meant that sincerely. I meant that sincerely that, that I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Um, all right. So where are we? 15. That's all? All right. So read. Next take the one ram and let Aaron and his sons lay their hands upon the ram's head. Slaughter the ram and take its blood and dash it against all sides of the altar. Cut up the ram into sections, wash its entrails and legs, and put them with its quarters and its head. Turn all of the ram into smoke upon the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing odor, a gift to the Lord. All right, remember, we got to always have the entrails burned up. Why? Why do we need entrails burned up? No divination. Thank you, Robert. People used to open an animal just in order to see the liver or the kidneys and read the omens that that meant. And it's very clear from Torah we're not allowed to do that. And so always we're going to see that the entrails are burned up. They're not used for divination. Okay, go on, Bert. Then take the other ram and let Aaron and his sons lay their hands upon the ram's head. 
slaughter the ram and take some of its blood and put it on the ridge of Aaron's right ear and on the ridges of his son's right ear, right ears, and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet and dash the rest of the blood against every side of the altar round about. Take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle upon Aaron and his vestments and also upon his sons and his sons' vestments. Thus shall he and his vestments be holy as well as his sons and his sons' vestments. Okay, so we had purification. Now we're going to use the blood. Did you have a video for this? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> the instructional YouTube video. Bert sounds like the guy there. <laughs> I know, right? Um <clears throat> Now we're going to get blood used, right? Um, in the ways that we, that we have seen. Uh, note the placing of the hands on the animal. This is designate, we're not sure exactly what this means. It happens with animals and it happens with people. Sometimes it designates ownership. Uh, and sometimes uh, the ritual is, um, is about, uh, is about transfer. Sometimes it's about, I own this. Sometimes it's about transferring something by putting one's hands, uh, on it. In the case of animals, possibly it's, we don't know, but possibly it's the same thing. Maybe not, but it could be the same thing that I, transfer whatever I deserve onto the animal and by placing my hands on it, I do that and designate it as mine so it stands in for me. I can't have Lisa's animal stand in for me and and be slaughtered. I, I have to claim it as mine. So it's possible that there's some of that 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 is behind some of this we don't we just don't know we don't have any discussion of the evolution of some of these rituals. I said this last time we studied this text that something about putting your hands on a live animal, um, because of something you did, now it's going to die, and you're feeling you with your full weight that that's hopefully going to impact you that you know maybe it'll change your behavior. So another. Poor animal doesn't have to die from something you did. Right. So it's it's a very powerful, very powerful yeah. ritual. Um, and, and sacrifice as well, right? A very powerful rite and ritual. Since we're going to eat meat, you know, our tradition evolved to say there there should be meaning attached to the loss of that life. I wanted to find out when you put, I see my daughter saying a prayer over her children on Friday night with, uh, I don't know, I can't remember. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I wanted to find out. I don't know what she said. She says the priestly benediction. It's a benediction. And, and I see that they do that. The priestly benediction. That's right. All right. The, the blessing that the priests used to bless the people. Oh, that could be why when we had the benediction when I was back home with my family, my father used to put the head over the whole gang. I mean, we were, right now we're about 150 people. But at the time, we weren't be close to 80 people. And he, he had to do that prayer once a year. Mm-hmm. And for a half hour before it was crying, during he was crying, and after he was crying. Because it was very powerful for him to do something like that. Mm-hmm. 
and I can't understand. I, I understood something not today that I didn't do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The power of placing our hands on our children is really something, right? It's a powerful, powerful thing to put your hands on the head of a child and long to transfer blessing. And praying we're not transferring and praying we are not transferring lots of other stuff uh, that we are hoping the kid will stand still um, I just love it when I put my hands on Ellie's head and she's like, it's like um, I just I just get it done with whatever I, I, when I'm not working you know we do we do candles and challah and whatever sometimes a meal usually not um, and and I said, okay, we're going to light candles. She goes, Mom. I'm like, what? She goes, I have a friend over. Invite the friend. You know, it's just like horrified that I'm going to do that thing, like with a friend over. All right, so the anointing blood from the slaughter, the sacrifice of the ram, the blood goes on the ridge of Aaron's right ear. On his son's ear, on the thumb of their right hand, and the big toe of the right foot. What is that about? Any thoughts? Jewish acupuncture. Something about the right side. Indeed, the rabbis have always associated the right side with tov and the left side with ra. I'm left handed. Oh, but I'm dexterous. Most people are right-handed. That's the dominant hand. If you're left-handed, sorry, you were kind of left to die on the top of the mountain. Just kidding. Um, so, right, it was. It's an anomaly, and, and anomalies made people very, very nervous in the ancient world. So it's no wonder that the right side, the dominant side, is the one that is associated with what's good, what's effective, what causes things in the world to happen, hopefully for the good. Again, we're an optimistic people. Like that that's our dominant hand is a good thing. Other traditions might say if it's the dominant hand, it's all already bad. That's not Jewish. Jewish says this is the hand that makes things happen in the world. It's the good side, right? Um, so blood on the ear, on the thumb, and on the big toe. Talk to me. Is it okay if I read a comment from that? Oh, <laughs> cheating. Well, I mean, I can pretend that I knew this. No, hang on, Sarah. Hey, hang on, hang on, Sarah. The ear takes in what is the rules of what's good and what does the least harm. So that's covering the ear. So the ear takes in information about how we should behave. And why the thumb, do you think? The thumb, because without the thumb, you can't take hold of that thing that you're going to do. Correct. Without the thumb, we are the only ones with opposable thumbs. That thumb makes all the difference about what we are able to achieve. Um, and as you said so beautifully, what we're able to, to take hold of. Then the big toe takes into consideration that you may have to go somewhere to do something. 
Beautifully done, Sarah, because whatever Bert's going to read now is not even close to how beautifully that said, and it's probably the same thing, because we, we really know, I mean, there's not a lot of other ways to interpret this, right? The ear, it takes in, right, instruction about what's good, and also we have choice about what we listen to, right? So there's lots of advice coming at us. May we use our ears to listen for wisdom, guidance, the good, how we're called into moving that forward. May we, may that be what we choose to listen to, right? Um, our hand, right, is what we're supposed to do stuff in the world. So may the priests be using their hands for holy work. And our feet means may we walk a holy path. May we walk a path of goodness. And I love what you said. We can't just sit here and wish for the world to be a better place, right? Doing locally right here where I sit with my hands only. I have to be ready to walk. I have to be ready to go. I have to be ready to journey to where I'm called to help make good things, holy things happen. Lovely, 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 lovely. All right. Uh, oh, okay, Bert. Do you still want to read your midrash? Well, there, there's two of them. The first one is very, is somewhat similar to what Sarah said. That it is uh, teaching that the Kohen must listen to the people, act on their behalf, and go forth among them, which is very similar. But the other one, the other midrash, sees the ceremony as helping Aaron atone for his role in the incident of the golden calf. The, quote, the ear that heard the words, you shall have no other gods beside me, and then listened to the people's demand for a calf. Okay, that, that he heard the command, but then, the, the okay? The hands that had pledged to serve God and then fashioned the calf, and the feet that climbed Mount Sinai and then hastened to do that which was wrong. All these had to be cleansed and rededicated to the service of God. Okay, so what we were saying, and here's a specific example. Right? May we listen to the good stuff, not the people asking for a calf. May we be about good stuff, not, you know, exactly an example of how Aharon himself failed to do that. What about the clothes, the vestments? Uh-huh. Did they get all trash with blood too? Soaked in... Mapitom soaked. They're, they're sprinkled. Okay. It's a sprinkle. It's... So his vestments should be... His vestments are vestments of service. And so those, they, they have to be, they have to be, um, activated is the only word that's coming to mind. They have to be made holy. They have to be sacralized, right? They, they have to be made sacred in some ritual fashion. I mean, we still have this instinct, right? You know, I was taught, you don't let a kippah sit on the floor. You don't let your tzitzit drag on the floor. If they do, you pick them up and kiss them. We still we have this instinct to take our sacred garments and treat them differently because they are kadosh. And when you put them on, they make you feel differently. Hopefully, yes. That's part of the point, I think. And if we were doing the second year triennial, so you'll have to come back for two more years, Laura. Um that that's the conversation because it's it's talking all about their clothes, right? So we we have that conversation about what what does what does 
clothing, ritual clothing, other clothing, uniforms. You know, when I'm talking with Bar and Bat Mitzvahs, you know, it's like the power of, of what we wear. All right, I want to close with verse 42-ish. Talking about what's happening in the Mishkan. There are instructions about what they're supposed to do in the Mishkan. <clears throat> Look at verse 42. That there's a tamid, a regular offering. And this is ner tamid, by the way, also, right? We, we always call it the eternal flame. The, the word is regular. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning consistently. Um, so the tamid will be offered throughout the generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before Adonai. For there I will meet you. This is God talking, of course. For there I will meet you, and there I will speak with you. And there I will meet with the Israelites, and it shall be sanctified by my presence. I will sanctify the tent of meeting and the altar, and I will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. I will abide among the Israelites, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I, Adonai, am their God, who brought them out from the land of Egypt, that I might abide among them. I yud hey vav hey am their God. And a very important, this is critically important, they are not taken out of Egypt to have a party. They are not taken out because freedom is a good thing. They are taken out in order that yud hey vav hey may dwell among them. That's the whole point of our freedom, that we have rights and responsibilities. If yud hey vav hey dwells among us, Here's what that means. Here's what y'all have to do. Here's what that requires of you, Israelites. That's the point of freedom. And that's the point of the Mishkan, is to point to that and to intensify the experience of the divine dwelling among us. Did I see a hand? Um, I will leave you with several things, one of which uh, is a beautiful exploration of this text. by Rabbi Rami Shapiro, who says that that the whole point, as we mentioned last week, there I will meet you and speak with you, right, from between the Kruvim. That God exists in the in-between. We don't really, as Jews, experience God so much in the I sit and commune with God. Rather, I'm in relationship, and in my relationships, I make manifest, or I don't, the divine presence. It is from in between people that God speaks, and that when we can allow ourselves to truly meet others, as Rabbi Rami says, if you meet the world as a Jew or an American or a man or a woman, you're not really meeting the world at all. No one knows who you are, only the conditioned image you project. God doesn't rest in the midst of this. But if you and the person you meet can each drop the clipote, the shells of race, gender, religion, nation, ethnicity, political parties, then there is a meeting, and in that meeting, God rests. An important uh, point about this part of Torah, we got off on another tangent, so we don't have time to talk about that. 
um, but the one I'm handing out to you uh, just now also uh, addresses this. And what I love about uh, this piece by Bradley Shavit Artson, Rabbi Artson, is that he says, notice that the Ohel, the tent, is the place of meeting. And he says, it's not God's presence that makes the Mishkan a holy place. It's Aaron showing up, ready to work on behalf of the people. It's Moshe, ready to do what it's going to take to lead the people. It's the people coming with their intention to make it right with sacrifices and offerings to try to have the power of that experience change their behavior. It's the meeting that makes that place holy and draws the divine to it. That the Ohel, this place of coming together, is a locus of holiness made sacred by the encounter that happens there. Jewish tradition makes explicit that such a meeting increases the holiness to be found in the world. The ability to come together, to truly know each other, to encounter another as we are. Such a meeting leaves us different, ennobled, greater than before. And that the inner core of real relationship is reciprocity. It turns out that we perceive the sanctity of the tent of meeting when we encounter God there, and God reveals holiness in the tent when we are present. Each party to the covenant is honored and glorified by the presence of the other. Holiness emerges between God and Israel, among God and Israel. It comes into the world through our coming together, God and Israel in a mysterious ancient relationship that has shed light across the millennia. May we take seriously the call to meet one another, to truly meet one another, not our reactions, not our opinions, not our designations of whatever they are, American, white, female, gay, whatever, to really meet each other in that experience we are taught every time it happens we bring the divine into the world and we have the possibility of moving this world a little bit closer to what it should be uh, to the holy and wonderful sacred miracle that it is shabbat shalom you've been listening to rabbi amy bernstein's friday morning torah study from kahilat israel in pacific palisades california For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.